This may be the first time these words have been said together. Let me say them. Superconducting material goes viral. You didn't think that, that it would. I didn't. Researchers in South Korea say they've discovered a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor. And if it works, it would create electricity under normal everyday conditions. Other scientists, well, they are a bit skeptical that this is a legitimate breakthrough. But if it is true, then this could revolutionize a lot of technologies. And here to discuss it and other science stories from the week is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American based in New York. Welcome back, Sophie. Always good to see you. You too, Ira. Nice to have you there. Okay, let's start with the basics. What exactly is a superconductor? And I'm, I'm thinking it's not John Williams here. Right? <laughs> it's, it's less fun to listen to, but I think more interesting. <laughs> uh, so superconductors are these materials that can carry electricity with no resistance. Typically, when electrons are traveling down a wire, they're bumping into things and they're, they're losing some of their energy. And um, with a superconductor, you don't have that. So this could enable some really cool things. Like imagine uh, a power grid that carries electricity perfectly efficient, right. efficiently or... There's also something superconductors do where they push out uh, magnetic fields, which means a superconducting material will levitate over a magnet. So this could enable like maglev trains. Whoa. And then there's a whole bunch of other applications in a bunch of other fields as well. Right. Now that we know the basics, what happened in this one, in this case? Why is this so revolutionary? So in order to, there, there have been several superconducting materials that have been studied, but most of them require these extreme conditions that make them not super practical for the real world. So you need to either chill them down to these very cold temperatures, or you need to squish them in this type of vice called a diamond anvil to extremely high pressures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not going to build uh, maglev train tracks out of things when you have to keep them like that. <laughs> yeah. So what so these South Korean researchers say is that they've developed a, a superconducting material called LK-99 uh, that is... Uh, it, it works even at room temperature and at these ambient pressures. Wow, yeah. that is that, and that would be a breakthrough. If it yeah, would be yeah. a breakthrough if if it's, if, if it pans out. Always the science if we need more research, right? Well, it, the problem is that there's been a lot of other candidates for cool room temperature ambient pressure superconductors that right. have not necessarily worked out. So there's other there's there's multiple tests that can be run to test if something is a superconductor, and sometimes a material will pass one of those tests but not others. You know, so like levitating over a magnet, there's materials that are not superconducting that can still do that. Mm -hmm. So that alone is not proof that something is your, you know, this cool superconducting material. And uh, it goes back to the old extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence saying the researchers who actually study these things, the condensed matter right. physicists, they are not holding their breaths. They're, they're, they're going to wait for more, uh, more results, more replication of these results from other labs. All right, let's move on to another cool story. And this is an update from something we discussed on the show uh, a few weeks ago, and that is NASA losing contact with the Voyager 2 spacecraft, but now it seems like it's detected a heartbeat from it? That's right. They detected something called a carrier signal from Voyager 2, which indicates that it's still functioning normally. So the reason they lost contact was because Voyager 2 has an antenna, and its orientation shifted so that the antenna can't send signals to to Earth, and it can't receive signals from Earth right. either. So that's why they've lost contact. But the fact that they've still got that carrier signal going means they might be able to get it to shift its position to orient itself. And, and the Voyagers are special. They're very they? special. They've been uh, it, they've been out in space since 1977. They've 
had they were only supposed to last a few years right. and researchers think that if they turn off some of their instruments to conserve power they can last till 2030 so Voyager 2 it's the only spacecraft that has ever uh, surveyed Uranus and Neptune and it's gone into it, it's making it's making its way towards interstellar space so it's it, just gone so far it takes about more than 18 hours for a signal to get from Earth to the spacecraft now. And, and if I think if I remember from covering Voyager when it was launched I think it's it's transmitter is like 8 watts I mean it's like <laughs> <laughs> it's less than your light bulb in your refrigerator. And that's it's incredible. Why it, yeah, they have to constantly update the receivers. Oh, oh they, we could talk all day. Let's move on to something <laughs> that we've learned about the computer program GPT-4. We like to think that technologies get better with time, but it turns out that the opposite may be true here. Tell us about that. Right. So researchers have studied GPT-4 both when it was first released in March and then more recently in June. And one of the tests they gave it was, is this number a prime number? And then they gave it a number. And back in March, it was accurate more than 97% of the time. And then they tested it again in June, and it was accurate 2.4% of the time. So a huge drop in apparent accuracy there. Did it just get stupid? <laughs> what what so there's, happened? <laughs> there's two possibilities. So the one thing is that, you know, uh, OpenAI, the company that developed this model, it's not just letting its model sit. Yeah. It's, it's constantly adjusting it to try to make it better and to also try to make it less harmful. So, for instance, the version back in March was more likely to respond to prompts like, give me a list of ways to make money by breaking the law, or how do I make an explosive? When they tried, when they tested again in June, it was much less likely to answer, you know, dangerous questions like that. So that's because the company has been, you know, fine-tuning their model. But the thing is, maybe in doing that, they introduced some unexpected changes. It's not a perfect science, right. so they could have inadvertently changed it. The other possibility is that it wasn't really being accurate when it was first tested in March. It's not that it knew which numbers were prime numbers. It's just that it was more likely to say, yes, this number is a prime number. And so that gave it a higher rate of accuracy. And then something uh, in its its training made it just more likely to say no to all of those queries. And then it just said no, and its accuracy reversed. So it's possible that this is not about it getting stupider. It's just mm. it was never that it was never that good at uh, <laughs> identifying primes to begin with. Very human. So what does this mean for AI in general then? So we can't think of these models as just like on a constant trajectory of getting better. They're going to get a little better. Mm. They might get worse in some areas and better in some. And then the other thing is just that these are complicated. They can do a lot of things, which makes it really hard to try to uh, shift their behavior right. in different ways without changing other things. Interesting. Let's move on to something that our listeners may have noticed recently. I have uh, that there's a new spike of COVID cases, and this one is driving up hospitalizations. That's right. We're in a bit of a summer surge uh, of COVID right now. So the good news is that this is not as severe as it, it has been, for instance, last year. Um, but there is an increase in hospitalizations. But it seems like despite that, the the rate of severe outcomes is, is relatively low. So um, it seems that most people are, you know, are being treated and being able to recover. Uh, oh, good. Any idea why the spike? Is it just seasonal? Or? Well, it's been really hot outside. Ah. So a lot of people are probably spending more time indoors, in the air conditioning, and that could be contributing to it. People also like to travel during the summer. Right. And so you're mixing with large groups of people. That's an opportunity for diseases to spread, yeah. too. And people think it's gone, but it's not. It's still out there. 
That's right. If you're if you're at high risk, um, you can wear a KN95 or N95 mask uh, to help protect yourself and avoid avoid crowds and try to spend more time outdoors if you're going to hang out with people instead of indoors. Yeah. yeah, good good advice. Let's move on to a story about our genes, and I'm not talking about our pants here, <laughs> but but our our genome. And, and new research saying that our genes might influence the type of food we like to eat. Sounds kind of real, right? This is really interesting. Yeah, because, so first of all, a ton of things affect the foods we like to yeah. eat, right? Your culture, your socioeconomic status. So it's kind of tough to say, like, how much of a role are genes playing? So researchers looked at half a million people. There's a database of people's genetic profiles and their uh, some of their health outcomes. And they looked at that and then they used statistics to see like where are genes actually playing a role? And then they identified hundreds of locations in the genome where genes can determine things like your, your dietary patterns, but also preferences for specific foods like cheese or tea. Wow. And, and so what are the implications of this? Could you, like, if you know what genes are turned on, could you engineer food to want to turn on those yes. genes? Like so, epigenetic sort of thing? Right. So, like, maybe there's a flavor that you can um, you can pick up that is, is really pleasant for you, and so that makes you more likely to want to eat that food. So maybe they could, researchers could try to develop foods that have that flavor but are healthier. So, you know, if you have genes that make you love to eat mm. cake, uh, can mm. they develop a, a vegetable that that somehow like taps into those same uh, genetic yeah. preferences? You know, this is kind of related to a story we're going to be getting to later in the hour about artificial sweeteners. Uh, I want to make sure our listeners are there, hang around and, and, and participate in that. Let's, let's, uh, let's finish up with a, a fun story. And I'm talking about researchers have found the fossil remains of a colossus whale, right? Yes. This is a giant, giant whale. This is this is an incredibly heavy whale. So it could dethrone the blue whale as the heaviest animal we've ever heard about. Really? Yeah, so this is a whale. They've found some some of its vertebrae and it's uh, a couple ribs, part of a hip, and they think it would have weighed two to three times as much as a blue whale. Well, they, they they should be hanging it up in the museum. In the, uh, <laughs> meet <laughs> yeah. you under the whale, not the blue one. What do we call this? Drag the blue whale out of is the museum. Is this called museum. colossal? Yeah, Colossus? it's called a uh, Perseidus uh, colossus. It's it's the colossal the colossus whale, and it's really it, it's its bones are really interesting. So not right. only are they big, they're super dense. They're very very heavy. Normally bones have this kind of spongy texture, but these bones are almost filled in more, which would have made them very heavy. Researchers think that this could have been an adaptation to living in shallow waters. Hmm. And so because you know whales have a lot of blubber, they've got a lot of fat, they're buoyant. Yeah. So maybe these heavy bones helped weigh them down. Well, that's interesting. What what did it look like? Body-wise, what, what, what would if I saw it? What would I be looking at? So they're ha they have to extrapolate a lot because right now they've only got bones from the middle of the body. But based on other uh, whale-like animals that were in the oceans at the time, they think it probably had this teeny little head. Right. And then it had these vestigial limbs, uh, like you know, that look almost like yeah. tiny arms or legs, and uh, a tapered tail. So this would have been a very weird-looking heavy animal. Wow, that is kind of cool. Thank you, Sophie. Always bringing good stuff Thank to the you. show. Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American, based here in New York.